What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, okay. hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. shockingly walked onto Nitro. A few weeks later, out comes Kevin Nash, and the takeover attempt was on. Bischoff was on the front line defending WCW and suffered a horrific attack at the hands of Hall and Nash a month later at the Great American Bash. This all led to July 7th, 1996. The formation of NWO with its new leader, Hollywood Hogan. The new world order of wrestling! The closeness of Bischoff and Hogan had been apparent over the years, but no one ever expected Bischoff, WCW's leader, to side with a new world order. October 27, 1996. Roddy Roddy Piper signs with WCW and confronts Hogan. Less than a month later, Bischoff was exposed by Piper. You're a liar! This began Bischoff's reign of terror. We are in control! And when things did not go the way he wanted, the very next day on Nitro, he turned I'll things back around. I know that you've had a tough year, but we can't I know I, I don't want to hear about your personal problems. You are hereby terminated. <laughs> Kids, would you please tell your daddy that he's still fired? <laughs> you are a problem. Bottom line is, guys, my decision is final. Leave the belt here, or you'll be a breach of contract. I've screwed up, I've made mistakes, and I apologize to you, and I apologize to everybody out here for it. Judge me by what I do, not by what I say. That's all I ask. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by the WWE Network. 
Head on over to wwenetwork.com slash TMPT and start your one-month free trial of the WWE Network, courtesy of your friends here at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And if you sign up right now, you can catch the number one sports entertainment podcast on the WWE Network as Bruce Pritchard's Something Else to Wrestle comes to the WWE Network with a very cool and very unique presentation And it's going on at the WWE Network right now. So head on over there and take advantage of our one-month free trial. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, we said it in the past. We said these episodes were going to get big. And we welcome today our TNPT Con 2 guest, the one and only Eric Bischoff. Coming back to the two-man power trip of wrestling, and it kind of works out perfectly that we have the WWE Network subscription promotion going where we're talking about something else to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and his tag team partner, Conrad Thompson, is now teaming up with our guest today, Eric Bischoff, to create almost a super podcast called 83 Weeks, but that is only just a small portion of what you are in store for today in this episode with Eric Bischoff. Obviously, we've had on Mr. Bischoff in the past. We were a part of and going to be a part of in the future Eric Bischoff's IRW Podcasting Network, where just like he has always done in the past, Eric Bischoff gives people the opportunity to be successful in their specific genre. And in this case, it was internet streaming, internet podcasting, and the association we've been able to have with Eric Bischoff is obviously an amazing, amazing career goal for both John and myself. And we kind of get into a little bit of that, talk about IRW, we talk about the 83-week podcast, but we just talk about all things Eric Bischoff. And I know, John, as I welcome you in here now, that is a, a conversation that you can have with anybody all day long, all things Eric Bischoff wall-to-wall. And this is just yet another fun chapter in this TFPT Contu Road that we keep building. And it's so awesome that he's going to be a part of not just the convention, but also the TMPT Contu Nightcap, which we will get to in a minute. But what are some of your feelings on the return here to the show of Eric Bischoff? Obviously, I know you have a lot to say about us. Yes, Chad. This was unbelievable to get Eric back on the show. And obviously, when we had our 300th episode, he gave us a big shout out which was great, and we you know we thank him immensely for that as well. And, of course, when we were partnering with him, and hopefully we'll be again in the future with the IRW Network. So it's always an honor and a privilege to get to talk to Eric. I've been a long-time fan of his, and obviously he's the only guy ever to beat Vince McMahon, and obviously that holds a lot of weight because there's so many promoters and there's so many wrestlers and so many people that wish – they could say that, but he's the only guy who could legitimately, for real, say he beat Vince McMahon and beat him at his own game and beat him for 83 weeks in a row. And obviously, we get into it on the podcast, but not only 83 weeks, if you kind of technically look into it, really beat him, not head-to-head, but 83 weeks was head-to-head, and then really 90 weeks he beats him as Nitro won. And then you really look further than that, 101 wins out of 118 weeks of the first battles of Nitro and Raw. I mean, it was a, a, a demolition. Nitro just demolished them. And then when Raw would beat them, it would only kind of be by a little bit, you know, only be a couple points. So it's really fun to kind of digest that and go through that with Eric and really kind of go through 
all WCW and go through all of the history of Nitro, not just the Monday Night Wars and not just 83 Weeks, his new podcast with Conrad Thompson, but to kind of dig deeper and talk about his history in Richmond, Virginia, like we're going to talk about at the Nightcap. And we're probably going to have a lot of fans want to talk to him about a TMPT Con 2 over there at the Holiday Inn that night on May 19th. So, and that day as well. But so, it's really cool to kind of digest. You know, you talk about Kevin Nash, who's going to be there. Scott Hall is going to be there. We also obviously delve into Hulk Hogan and the history of him turning heel. There's just so many different things to talk to him about. I mean, we could literally probably just talk to him for hours on end, like we almost did the first time we had him on. But uh, this time, a little bit of a shorter interview, but such great stuff. We get into just... Pretty much every topic we try to touch on a little bit as far as his tenure with WCW. We even talk about him being the executive vice president and then obviously becoming the president of WCW. We get a nice little joke in about that. But, you know, as we start to talk about the WWE and we go into different kind of things, I have to mention our WWE Network.com tmpt availability so basically wbnetwork.com slash tmpt get a free month of the wwe network and you're going to get wwe backlash which is the next big time pay-per-view coming out and you get a free month so why we always talk about having that free month and you go to wbnetwork.com slash tmpt you got to go to wb network for our wb network recommendation and while chad did mention something else to wrestle with with bruce pritchard I got to go WCW since Eric is on with this episode. So go to WCW, go to pay-per-views, go to 1996, go to Great American Bash. Hall, Nash, Bischoff. When that segment comes on and Hall punches Bischoff in the gut, when Bischoff doesn't reveal WCW's team, he said, you're not going to find that out tonight. You're going to find that out on Nitro. That really, really set it off. And obviously Richmond, Virginia, and that area paid a big part because that's where the meat of this happened and, and Nash gives him the power bomb through the table. And basically at that moment forward, that completely set it off and that set off the 83 weeks. So I have to mention wbnetworkcom slash TMPT. And my network recommendation would be great American bash 1996. Check out holes, punch the gut, check out Kevin Nash, gigantic, huge power bomb on easy E through the table. It's going to be one amazing day on May 19th in Richmond, Virginia at the Holiday Inn. You can go to our website, which is tmptofwrestling.com, and you can get all the ticket information on not just the convention, but also the TMPT Con 2 nightcap, where you're going to hear us talking about it with Eric, but you're going to be able to sit down, have a couple of drinks, get something to eat, and have a nice intimate Q&A, as well as another meet and greet with Eric Bischoff at the Backyard Grill in Richmond, Virginia. It's going to be uh, a one just amazing fun day. And let's run down the guest list of TMPT Con 2. I'm going to go through the full entire guest list. And you can kind of play mental chess and see all the people that Eric Bischoff has worked with or is employed throughout his entire career. It's an amazing collection of, of talent. And it's not only Eric Bischoff, but it's Scott Hall. It's Kevin Nash. It's Henry Godwin. Two Colts Scorpio, Ronnie Garvin, Mikey Whipwreck, Gilbert, Shannon Moore, Solo Darling, New Jack, Tony Atlas, The Barbarian, C.W. Anderson, Mr. Hughes, Oscar from Men on a Mission. Oh my goodness gracious, what a collection of talent in one place, in one venue, and it's all going down May 19th at the Holiday Inn 
in Richmond, Virginia. And we want to thank Mr. Bischoff again for coming on for the second time and chatting with us again. And also all the things we've done with him in the past at the IRW Network. We just want to extend another huge thank you to him for giving us that opportunity. Because if it wasn't for the IRW Network, you would not have a triple threat podcast, which is coming to you once a week on our podcasting platform here. So the biggest thanks to Mr. Bischoff. All the greatest of luck from the two-man power trip with 83 weeks. Obviously, you don't need help. you don't need any of our luck. They're doing just fine, debuting nearly at the number one spot on the iTunes charts. Obviously, the number one sports podcast in their debut week, which is just friggin' phenomenal. So, all the best to 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 Conrad and Eric with that show. And please stay tuned for more with the two-man power trip as we get on the road here to TNPT Con Two. So. John, as you do best, let's do this right now and hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get it on over to the boss, Easy e Eric Bischoff. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Two-Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Follow along with a two-man power trip as we come to a town near you. Join us in Richmond, Virginia for TMPTCon 2, May 19th at the Holiday Inn with feature guests Kevin Nash, Easy e Eric Bischoff, Mikey Whipwreck, Mark Canterbury, and so many more. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, the former president of WCW, he is a New York Times number one best-selling author, he is the architect of the NWO, he is the boss, he is Easy e Eric Bischoff. Enjoy.
And joining us on the line tonight is a man we used to call the boss when we were a part of the IRW network. He is the former executive vice president of WCW. He's a former New York Times number one best-selling author. He's the architect of the NWO, a former general manager of Monday Night Raw. He is Easy e Eric Bischoff. Mr. Bischoff, welcome back to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Great. It's great to be with you, but I have to make a couple corrections. Number one, you, you although the IRW network is on hiatus, we're uh, working diligently um, on fine-tuning it, and we hope to be launching again or relaunching here in about 90 days. So hopefully you guys will be back on board. We haven't parted company. We're just working out some bugs. And by the way, I was the former president of WCW, not the executive vice president but that's okay well mr bischoff what i have to say to that is your biggest fan who's on the other side of the line is the one who writes the run sheets here so <laughs> chat chad is in the clear on this one so i uh i'm perfectly fine with getting it wrong so uh I, my apologies sir that's all right but that's what happens when you rely on wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> i know come on john what's your problem but anyway what are we here to talk about we are here to talk about the big tmpt con 2 coming to Richmond, Virginia, this coming May 19th, which is the two-man power trip of wrestling's wrestling fan convention. It's going to be a day of autographs. It's going to be a day of photo opportunities. And when we put our list of guys together, the cornerstone of this show, the first person that we got on board, was the one and only Eric Bischoff, who will be joining his former NWO counterparts, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, amongst the other stars that we'll have at TMPTCon. Mr. Bischoff, we are thrilled to have you on board, and we cannot wait for May 19th in Richmond, Virginia. I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't been to Richmond in a long, long time, and I love the area. I really love the fans. It's just, you know, there's such a, uh, a great legacy of professional wrestling in the Richmond area, and it's, it's just, you can tell, you know, when you travel around the country and you meet fans, I mean, almost everywhere you go, fans are great. But when you go into certain markets in the United States, and Richmond is one of them, where wrestling has been such a, it's a generational thing. You know, there are kids now watching wrestling with their dads who are watching wrestling with their dads. And, you know, when you have that kind of a legacy in a market, you know, it's just, it's a little special. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. That Richmond fan base is just so passionate for wrestling. And obviously they're well tied to the Mid-Atlantic Territory and as well as a great hub for both WCW and the WWF. And WWE still runs Richmond fairly often, so that fan base is rabid. But like I said, when we put together the idea for this show, you were the first person that we talked about and wanted to get on board. We were so thrilled to get you on board. And in addition to the fan convention, which we have tickets available at facebook.com slash wrestling, as well as at our website, tmptofwrestling.com, we're going to have a pretty unique event with you later on in the evening. We're calling it the TMPTCon2 Nightcap, where you, us, and a couple of our uh, closest confidants and friends will get together for a dinner, some drinks, and a little uh, back and forth with Easy e So I know you love talking WCW, Eric, and I'm sure we're going to be getting into it a lot that night. But again, the TMPT Contune Nightcap, a question and answer session with Eric Bischoff. How can we go wrong with that? That sounds like a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I did an event like that with Bruce Pritchard in Detroit uh, a couple months ago. I think he calls his the Dirty Dozen. And what Bruce does is he invites a maximum of 12 people, 
and they do exactly what you're talking about. They sit down, they have dinner together, they have a couple cocktails together. And it's amazing the, the, the kind of conversation that you get into because it, it really ends up after the first few minutes, it's like, you know, just a group of friends sitting around talking wrestling as opposed to a traditional, you know, like if you go to a Comic-Con and there's a big panel and there's 100 people in the audience and people are up on stage, you know, it's the distance kind of creates even more distance. But when you're just sitting around having dinner and breaking bread and having a beer, you, you just get a a higher quality of conversation. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we can't wait. And May 19th, it's not too far off. And we've been putting this stuff together since December. So for it to only be a few weeks away is like uh, kind of hard to believe because, you know, you baby it, you put it together, and you would know better than anybody when a plan comes to fruition and it's uh, coming to plan, you know, the plan's coming to fruition pretty well at this point. You know that that's always uh, a good thing. But as always, you are always involved in something, you always got something stirring. And now you got a brand new show that's been announced, 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson. Can you tell us about what this new venture is all about in this brand new show? I'm sure we might know what the topic's going to be, a little WCW Nitro. Yeah, you know, we call the show 83 Weeks, um, and, and really what that represents is, obviously, it's, you know, the 83 consecutive weeks that Nitro beat Raw in the ratings head-to-head. You know, clearly we beat them more than 83 weeks, but there were 83 consecutive weeks. And it's really not so much about, you know, who beat who for how long, even though the, the, the title of the show would lead you to think that. But I think what we're going to talk about more than anything is, you know, what those 83 weeks and what that competition referred to as the Monday Night Wars really represents and how it still exists, or or I should say, um, how those 83 weeks impacted what we're watching right now, because a lot of things changed during those 83 weeks, both in WCW, obviously, and, and, and WWE. And there's so many things that people, you know, don't realize, that, you know, when they watch Monday Night Raw now, that's three hours and it's live, they don't realize that the, the reason they're watching a three-hour live show is because of those 83 weeks. When people are watching reality-based, you know, programming within WWE now, they don't realize that, you know, WWE kind of embraced reality-based storytelling because of those 83 weeks. So I think, you know, when people watch, you know, one pay-per-view a month, they don't realize that the reason they're watching that many pay-per-views per month is because of those 83 weeks. So we're going to go into a lot of the, the, the strategies, the tactics that really still manifest today in the content that people are watching, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. You know, and one of the complaints I guess people still have with with WWE programming and it being three hours today is the fact that you know it gets to be a little too long. You see a lot of regurgitated action. Unfortunately, you can only spin the wheel so many times. But thinking back to those eighty three weeks, and we saw when Nitro went to three hours. And I always kind of casually say with John, you know, hey, if we could see seven hours of a WrestleMania or seven hours of a Starcade, but put it back in 98, man, it would be a lot different. But I don't know if I'm looking back at that with rose-colored glasses or not, but when I think of three-hour shows, I think back to Nitro, and you guys were so ahead of your time and doing something like that. But was that a hard thing for you to undertake, that extra hour of programming every single week like WWE is still doing today? Yeah, it's it, it it's really tough, and I you know I have 
you know, I'm not certain about what I'm about to say. I'm, I'm not on the inside of WWE. I don't have any inside information or insight, but I'm, you know, I've been there. I've done that. Um, and I'm pretty certain that the reason the WWE is doing it is strictly an economic reason. It's not for any other reason than, you know, when, when you travel, you know, probably, I'm guessing 60, 80 talent, maybe more, uh, probably 130, 140 production people, maybe more. When you've got six or eight production trucks that are on the road, you know, making their way to that arena, when you've got all of that investment that you have to, you, you have to spend in order to get that show up for two hours, you know, sooner or later, some accountant comes along and says, but hey, hey Vince, or hey, Eric, at, at the time, you know what? If you just go an extra hour, you're going to make a whole lot more money and you really don't have any other expense because you're already here. And that desire to generate that extra revenue because you have so much expense in setting up and delivering that two-hour show, you know, just the math, the financial side of it makes it almost necessary that you go three hours. That being said, it's the longest third hour of your life because it takes such a toll on you creatively. And it takes a toll on the audience. You know, it's it's hard enough to keep the audience. First of all, let's step back on it. It's not like they're doing, you know, eight weeks of a television series like most television shows are, or even 10, or God forbid, 13, like they used to be. They're doing it 52 weeks a year. So now you've got three hours of content, 52 weeks a year, and you have to hold your audience. You can't afford for your audience to go, oh, man, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Or, you know, let's just take a look and see what's out over here. You got to hold their attention, and that's the hard part. How do you deliver those three hours to satisfy the accountants, and deliver those three hours and satisfy the audience? Because they're two different agendas. It's it is tough. It really is tough. Well, when I think of three-hour nitros and I think of shows like that, I mean, the first one that I have to think of is the first ever three-hour nitro, which, I mean, if you follow that formula, obviously every three-hour nitro, if they were to be like that, it, it could have been absolutely amazing when Lex Luger beat Hulk Hogan for the world title, which legitimately, still to this day, if you think about the finish and if fans were fans then and you know what I'm talking about, it literally could raise the hair on your arms because you did not see it coming whatsoever and you obviously being so famous for those surprises and for those things that you didn't expect can you pinpoint that moment as something that got over that three-hour block for you and made you think maybe i am onto something by having these bigger shows at three hours on monday night well you know it's not it was never just one thing it was a combination of things you know the the surprise you know first of all going live was something that no one had ever really done before on a regular basis. Um, going live gives you the freedom, or at least the latitude, I should say, um, to do the unexpected and to get away with it. And going into Nitro, particularly the early ones, you know, I, I was determined from the get-go, from you know, months before we aired the first show. I knew that one of the things that we had to do to make Nitro successful is to deliver the unexpected, to create surprises, to do things the audience had never really seen before or heard of before. 
That was the only way I was going to get people to sample me. And I went literally to every extreme I could from giving away finishes and going up a few minutes early to, you know, a match with Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger, like you, you described having Lex Luger come out and surprise everybody when everybody, including the people that he worked, used to work for in WWE thought he was still on a contract. It wasn't any one of those things, but a, a, a steady diet of as many of them as possible is what really turned the tide and what made Nitro really uh, what created the 83 weeks. No, I just got to clear my name for a second here. The executive vice president never really need to look at Wikipedia when dealing with uh, a subject like you because I'm such a big WCW fan. But I actually get that from watching the credits. When you watch an old WCW pay-per-view, they would refer to you as the executive vice president of WCW. That's where I got yeah. it from. No, come on, no man. Wikipedia. It's a little bit. It's a little bit <laughs> like when you when you attain a certain uh, political office. You know, once you once you become a senator, you may have started out as the dog mm-hmm. teacher. True. And then eventually you, you became the chief of police and then you became the county commissioner and eventually you be, you know, you became mayor and then governor and then eventually senator. And they refer to you as, as your last title. They don't refer to you as a dog catcher. Now, Very true. Yes, I, I was an executive vice president on my way to becoming president. Yes. But just like you, just like you would refer to a senator by a senator's title or a general, every general started out as a private. You wouldn't, you wouldn't refer to a general as as a private when you address them. So I'm just, you know, I'm I'm not True. upset much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's not going to sleep tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, back to 83 weeks. It's funny when you look at the 83 weeks, and that's head to head. If you look a little bit further, technically, you know, you won 90 straight weeks, not head-to-head, but 90 weeks in total. Then if you look from September 4th, 95 to April 13th, 98, when Vince fought uh, Austin in Philly, you guys won 101, basically, of 118 shows. Was that almost when you kind of thought of Nitro and were first going head-to-head against Vince? Was that almost, like, impossible to think, like, I'm going to beat this guy 101 times out of... 118 like something is that crazy to think back at you know when you you know when you put it that way and you frame it you know with 2020 hindsight i mean it's mind-boggling right in particular when in particularly when in all honesty i i never thought we'd beat him it really wasn't my goal initially now i have to be careful here because this you know people will listen to this and They'll, they'll listen to just a piece of what I'm about to say, and then they'll be talking about what a liar I am, and I'll have to defend myself for the next five years because <laughs> I, I, I said one thing that they took out of context. But in the, be- in the very beginning, you know, it wasn't my idea to go head-to-head in the first place. It was Ted Turner's. We all know that. And I, but I knew I had to be successful. And my idea going into that, going into that first episode, you know, the first two months, three months, all I wanted to do was not get killed. <laughs> and I did everything I could, and I, 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 I took every chance I could. I used every creative instinct I've ever had. Um, we did a ton of really intense research, which, which really helped me a lot, by the way, and really helped me understand the significance of some of those elements that made Nitro successful. The surprises, 
the the feeling, the vibe that you had to tune into that show because anything could happen. You know, that was the underlying, you know, message in every one of those shows. And that wasn't me sitting in a corner by myself being a genius. That was me traveling around the country listening to focus groups that were put on by a, a really uh, successful research company and me listening to the audience and listening to the audience describe, you know, what they wanted to see or what they liked most about wrestling when they liked it. And, you know, that, that insight came from, you know, fans of WWF at that time. It came from, you know, people that didn't like WWF. It came from fans of WCW. It came from fans that didn't like WCW. I listened to everybody. And one of the common threads through all of those focus groups was, you know, everybody, regardless of who they were fans of or not, one thing that they all felt strongly about is when they watch a wrestling show, they watch because there's a sense of, you know, anything can happen. On a scale of one to ten of all of the elements in a wrestling show, you know, if you started at the bottom and, you know, th there's the obvious, you know, well, I watch it because of the characters. Well, no, no, no kidding. You know, everybody does. But if you start at the bottom and it's characters and it's storyline and it's lights or it's comedy or it's, you know, the women or the action at the very top of the list was spontaneity and that sense that anything can happen. And I just, you know. I'm a reasonably intelligent person given an opportunity. I, I took that message loud and clear and made sure that that was like the underlying theme in every one of my shows. So true with Nitro, anything could happen. And the surprises were awesome. Obviously, the NWO was awesome. But something that's really interesting is, is kind of the way Vince was treating the way when you guys were beating them. Obviously, Vince McMahon's grandfather was a very, very successful promoter. His father was probably the arguably one of the most um, successful promoters of all time and then he takes the reins and he just does some unbelievable things but he had never been beaten before his father arguably was never beaten before his grandfather arguably you could say was never beaten before then all of a sudden this young kind of upstart quote-unquote genius comes and beats him and then he kind of says oh it's it's ted turner does any of that like ever bother you where it's like no no it wasn't ted it, it was me i was beating you it used to to be really honest about it um Early on, I was like, "Well, you arrogant prick! You, you don't even have you, you don't even have the balls to admit, you know, you've you've got to you know hide behind billionaire Ted and all the skits that he did, and you know all the press that he did, and you know all that did was make me you know make more noise, you know, make fun of him on TV, grab the fan signs, saying Vince fears ratings, you know. The more he tried to pretend that I didn't exist, the more I made sure he knew I did." You know, up to and including calling him out and challenging him to a real fight, which, by the way, he didn't have the balls to show up for. So, you know, I, I, I did all of those things, not, not only because of the fact that he kept trying to deny, because he was in denial, that he was getting, you know, he was being outsmarted. He was, you know, I was more creative than he was. I had my finger on the pulse of the audience, and he didn't. Um, we, we created, you know, a juggernaut, and he was digging a ditch. Um, and yeah, it used to, it used to get under my skin. Now I laugh about it. You know, it, it you know, of course my perspective is much different and you know, I've spent you know, four or five years working with WWE. I have a ton of respect for Vince and I understand why he did it. I understand why he felt the need to, you know, convince the world that, you know, Eric Bischoff, this young, you know, relatively unknown upstart, 
you know, came from out of nowhere and did what nobody else in three generations of, of McMahon family business could possibly do. That's, you know, that, that, that wouldn't have rallied the troops. You know, that would have just made him look like a failure. He had to he had to create the perception that he was getting beat because it was a small family business, you know, that had been around forever. And big bad billionaire Ted was trying to smack him around the room. That story worked. That got people that turned to babyface. That made his audience sympathetic to him. That made his already loyal audience even more loyal. And by God, that's really smart of him. You know, I get that now, but back then, yeah, he's, he's just driving nuts. And it's interesting too, if you really look at it, Jim Hurd kind of screwed up WCW to a point where it's like it was not the NWA that's been around for a hundred years. This was WCW that was kind of a baby in essence and heard kind of screwed it up and you were behind the eight ball as it is. So for you to come out ahead and come out way ahead of Vince, that even says a lot more, right? I mean, it's crazy. Like you were kind of way behind the eight ball when you started. Well, I mean, WCW was, and I don't think it was really Jim Hurst's fault. I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't do himself or the brand any favors either, but you look, look, Ted Turner bought the NWA out of bankruptcy. So, I mean, if you take it all the way back, you know, the NWA was was in a financial ditch. They were in bankruptcy. Ted Turner bought them out of bankruptcy. So they didn't even start from, you know, ground zero. They started from ground below zero. Uh, now, granted, Ted had a lot of money and he had his own cable network. And that's a huge thing. You can't dismiss that. But the brand itself, forget about what, you know, resources Ted Turner had. The brand itself had been stomped and stomped again in the eyes of the fans. So, you know, Ted bought it and look, he, he, you know, he, Ted didn't know a lot about wrestling. Um, he hired people that he thought did. He hired a lot of people who were probably in large, in large part, you know, responsible for NWA going into the ditch in the first place. So you got a, you got a company that's in bankruptcy and you, you buy them out of bankruptcy and then you bring a lot of the people that were in management along with them, along into the new company. It wasn't necessarily, you know, the smartest thing to do in retrospect. But, the, you know, you didn't have a lot of options. You couldn't put an ad in the paper and hire people with wrestling experience. It's a very small community, even more so at that time. So, you know, he, Ted did what he had to do. And it limped along. And Jim Hurd came in, and I guess on paper that probably looked like a good idea. Um, but it wasn't. We all know that. We don't need to talk about it. It just wasn't. And then there was a series of mistakes that were far worse than Jim Hurd. You know, Kip Fry came in for a cup of coffee uh, with a lot of great ideas. And Kip was a very smart guy. I mean, he was an entertainment lawyer. He wasn't a dummy. He just didn't have a feel for the product because he didn't really pay any attention to it up until the day he was made president um, or whatever his title was, general. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, Kip Fry was there for a short period of time. And then, you know, I think Bill Watts probably did more damage to WCW than Kip Fry uh, and, and Jim Hurd combined by a multiple of four. I mean, Bill Watts was the single worst decision that anybody in Turner Broadcasting ever made with regard to WCW. He was he was a he was a dinosaur. You know, the only thing he knew about the business is what he remembered from his career 15 or 20 years before. And the industry had changed so dramatically 
that it, it passed him by a decade before he came to WCW. So his whole perspective on the industry was, it would, it would, it would be like Apple, you know, hiring somebody that used to fix rotary phones to redesign an iPhone. It just, <laughs> it was, it was, it was dumb from the, from the beginning. And it was only compounded by his arrogance, his, his racial, racial attitudes, the stupid things that he said in the press. They've got so much negative publicity. So not only was Bill Watts completely frigging incompetent when it came to turning WCW around or even just trying to get it, you know, in between the lanes, um, he, did a, he did a ton of damage. Uh, from a public relations point of view, internally at Turner Broadcasting, there were executives, if it wasn't for Ted Turner, there were executives that wanted to burn the WCW offices to the ground. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to fund it. They didn't want to support it. They didn't want anybody in WCW to step outside of the offices and be seen in the CNN Center. It was, it, we were a pariah because of Bill Watts in his backwards way of thinking. So that's what I took over. By the way, it, it wasn't just that it was limping along because of Jim Hurd. It was limping along because of a series of bad decisions capped off by one of the most nuclear stupid ideas in the world, which was hiring Bill Watts. Can you tell, yeah, I'm, I, not a Bill, can you tell I'm not a Bill Watts fan? <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking. I was like, my God, who does he hate more than Watts? I mean, that's, that's pretty uh, – <laughs> Definitely you know what? Though, you know what? I, I saw Bill at Russicon and he was sitting next to Eric Watts. I don't hate Bill. I don't hate him at all. But the truth is the truth. Facts are the facts. And when within the context of how bad off WCW was, that's something that a lot of wrestling fans don't realize. It. They don't understand context because they didn't pay attention to it at the time. And they don't really do the research. You know, you guys did, and I appreciate it, by the way, of, of talking about, you know, not only did we beat them for 83 weeks, but look at where we came from, which was not a level playing field. It was in the sewer on a cold winter day <laughs> without a <laughs> shovel. But, you know, I don't hate Bill at all. I, you know, I, I hope he lives out the rest of his life a happy man. I think he is. And I, I carry no dislike for Bill. But the truth is the truth. And everything that I said was true. And if you think about the catalyst of, of that 83 weeks and you guys going on fire, you can literally pinpoint it, obviously, if you look up the date, obviously, as well. June 17th, 1996, and it's funny what came right before that, a huge WCW pay-per-view, Great American Bash. You are in there, or you're basically on the, the rampway, talking to Hall and Nash. You take the powerbomb through the table, boom, right after that, 83 straight weeks. You thinking that power bomb to hell had anything to do with uh, really getting over that NWO angle? No, well, I think it was part of it. You know, like I've said before, you know, when we were talking about Nitro, you know, it's never one thing. It's when when things go well, it's a combination of many, you know, little things that are, that go right. It's never one big thing. If it was, it would be easy to replicate. You know, if it was, it would be we'd be we'd have, we would have been watching. Fo- five or 10 or 15 or 20 or more, you know, successful versions of the NWO, each one of them, you know, surpassing the previous one in terms of its success. So much of it was timing, you know, look, the, the timing was perfect. The situation was perfect for it. 
But it was the combination. It was the basic story. You know, the basic premise of the NWO story was two guys who had previously worked in WCW that got no respect, weren't treated like champions. Nobody worked hard to get them over. They didn't get the opportunity they felt they deserved, so they left, and he went to WWF, where they became big stars. And then when they got tired of that, they were going to come back to WCW and make everybody pay and teach them why they should have been treated with more respect. That was the foundational support of that story. That was the premise. And it was a believable premise. It was a reality-based premise. Not to mention the fact that they were two big stars from WWF who looked like they were just jumping ship, which helped immensely. Not to, and, and, and calling them Scott Hall and not giving them some fake cartoon name that you know Marvel Comics would have come up with. You know, he, he wasn't Razor Ramon or some variation of it or some other gimmick name. He was Scott Hall. Nobody had ever done that before. Kevin Nash came over as Kevin Nash. He wasn't Diesel. He wasn't Oz. You know, he wasn't the Diamond Stud. He wasn't. He wasn't a gimmick. He came over as a real guy with a real chip on his shoulder. So the story, the way we positioned the talent, the characters as real people and not gimmick characters. And then I think, of course, yeah. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like you know a guy you know seven foot tall, three hundred plus pounds picking up a hundred eighty five pound announcer and power bombing him off a stage on live television. That was kind of a new thing, and. It was the combination of those things that really helped launch those 83 weeks, but it was certainly not any one of them. And the combination of all those things really only worked because of the timing. And it is funny that that Nitro, the day after Great American Bash, was actually in Richmond, Virginia, kind of a great tie-in to our Richmond show, and that will definitely be brought up on the 19th of May, that Richmond, Virginia is kind of the the you know, the place where the uh, nitro boom started, which is pretty cool. It was the epicenter of the nuclear bomb called nitro. <laughs> boom. <laughs> and it also doesn't hurt that the biggest star ever, the Babe Ruth of wrestling, the greatest of all time turns heel, you know, a few weeks later and really NWO kicks it off. And it is a great, one of those water cooler moments where everyone was talking about how he turned heel. Yeah, it was crazy. I, you know, I remember, you know, afterwards, I, I was doing a lot of flying back and forth, traveling a ton. And, you know, I always get upgraded in the first class because of the miles that I had and all that. And, I, you know, I'd be sitting up first class with, you know, bankers and stockbrokers and entertainment people and all kinds of, you know, fairly wealthy, successful people, right, that normally you wouldn't think were wrestling fans. But, man, the minute they recognized me, it's like, what in the hell was going on with Hulk Hogan a couple? I mean, people that just quit watching wrestling decades ago were all of a sudden tuning into wrestling. I mean, it really was amazing. I I look back at it now like a movie that I watched, you know. I, I, I don't look back at it like I was in it or I you know, created it or was a part of the team that created it. I literally look back at those times now like it was a movie that I had seen once before. It, that's how distant it is from me. And I don't think about it often. You know, it's only really in interviews like this that I you know, spend any time thinking about it. But when I do and I play it back in my mind, like I said, it's like watching a movie I've seen you know, a decade or two ago. 
And then I, I remember, wow, that really was kind of fascinating. It was, it was special. There, there's so much to it, though, and it's not just that the TV product was so strong and the guys that you had on your roster were, were so great, and obviously like Hogan, Hall, Nash, Macho Man, all the great flair, everybody you could think of, but it's to even think about the T-shirts and the NWO shirts and John and I being you know, in our mid-teens at the height of the NWO, and, and you put on a black and white T-shirt with three letters across it, you kind of instantly felt like you were a part of something special because the NWO was so huge. And I'm sure when you were on those planes and you kind of could look over and you see an NWO shirt or somebody kind of flashed the too sweet at you, I'm sure that was just as satisfying because you guys really changed the makeup of how pro wrestling was in that mid-90s span of a few years. It, you know, it was, certainly. And, you know, I can give you examples of that. You know, it, I think when it really kind of hit me hard was... You know, because you got to, you know, again, context is always king with me. You know, when I was running hard, my life was really my office, the inside of a plane, a hotel room, an arena, very little time at home. Start that all over again, just week in and week out. So I, I don't want to say I was living in a bubble, but. I wasn't out on the street a lot. Let's put it that way. Everybody that I came into contact with, unless I was on an airplane and checking into a hotel, were people that I was working with or people in the, in the arena. Um, but when it really hit me uh, was one year when I was over in Japan. It must have been 96 or 97. I think it was probably late 96 for one of the big Japanese uh, New Year's Eve shows. And I looked around the arena and there's like hundreds of, I don't want to say a thousand because that might be exaggerating, but it seemed like a thousand. It was probably a couple hundred NWO shirts inside the Tokyo Dome. And we didn't even sell them there. I was like, wow, that's pretty badass. And then my, my buddy Sonny, you know, Sonny Ono and I are walking around, you know, downtown and kind of like the, the, the seedier side of Tokyo because that's where all the good sushi bars really are. Um, we're walking around, you know, this is called a uh, Kabuksho. We're walking around the Kabuksho in, in Tokyo and late at night, and we're seeing, you know, guys coming out of bars wearing NWO shirts. Now, this is crazy. This is really something else. But what's really fat, even more fascinating to me than that, and it happens to be all the time to this day, it happened to me at WrestleMania last weekend. You know how many NWO shirts I saw at WrestleCon? Can't imagine. There were, people wearing, there were people wearing NWO shirts that weren't even alive when I launched the NWO. That's that. I mean, there were there were sixteen year old kids walking around with NWO shirts. Going, well, that's insane. You weren't you you were an accident in the back seat of a Chevy. Oh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. You guys set it off, and it, it's funny that you know you mentioned the NWO in Japan, and we we interviewed Jeff Farmer. Not too long ago, and if folks haven't heard that, that's the NWO sting. And he described what those scenes were like in Japan and just how over the NWO was uh, their group. But also whenever the Americans came over, it was like, uh, you know, the Beatles coming through because you guys were literally bigger than life. And for those shirts to be over there, like you said, if they weren't even selling them like that, I mean, that's just a testament to how over the group was. They, <laughs> You really branched out, whereas WWE always wanted to be worldwide. You were literally global and touching the other side of the world. It was, it, well, and they, I mean, they were too, they were much bigger 
internationally than we were. I don't want to mean to, to. I don't want to suggest that it was different. You know, they had always, even when we were kicking their ass, they were still. They still had a much more significant presence than we did internationally. But it, it was just it, it. Really, what I was referring to was just the power and the context and, and the reach of NWO and and the irony. I don't know if it's ir- ironic or not. Maybe that's not the right word, but. The fact that I'm still seeing NWO shirts, you know, everywhere I go. You watch Monday Night Raw or SmackDown, you're still gonna watch. You're still gonna see NWO shirts in the audience. You know, you go to WrestleMania, people are still wearing NWO shirts while they're watching WrestleMania 34. And I think that is what you know. People ask, or you know, and not so much that they ask me, because usually when people interview me, they're, they're generally pretty polite about it. But you know, I, I read the, the the chatter and the you know the. the chat rooms and the groups and so forth and it's always a debate and i think it's a fun debate i'm not discouraging it or putting it down but you know people are always debating you know what was the best faction dx or nwo four horsemen or nwo four horsemen or dx or whatever and i just laugh i think it's funny because you know when i see scott hall and kevin nash at the at wrestlecon for example neither one of them are wearing a razor ramon gimmick or a Diesel gimmicks, NWO <laughs> gimmicks, right? I don't see four. I don't see any four horsemen t-shirts in the crowd. You know, I mean, there may be one or two out there. You know, a real diehard fan, but I don't think you can compare any other storyline, any other moment in time, really, in the last three decades that can point to the NWO and say, "Yeah, but we were more popular than that." It just didn't happen. Hey, it's for life. What are you going to do? You know, it's 2018, but you did say it was for life. So, I mean, we got to uh, carry on the tradition we, somehow, you know? We, we put it out there in the universe, and the universe is putting it back to life. <laughs> still here. Exactly. It is for life. That's right. And before I hand it over to John and we get into the uh, the final stage here of the interview, I got to just mention this one thing, too. You know, and Vince McMahon, obviously, you know, he absorbed a lot of the stuff that you were throwing out there, whether it was the results or whenever you would pull out one of those signs. I swear to God, I mean, it tickled me every time. And you just always get that snicker, whether it was Vince fears Nitro or Vince, you know, fears ratings, all that stuff it was always so great. But the first time Vince ever acknowledged the NWO, he referred to it as the clothing line, the NWO. So I'm sure you probably, you know, if you had heard that at that point or if you've heard it since, it's kind of funny that he still wouldn't go out on a limb and put you guys over, but he referred to you as a clothing line because I'm sure he was seeing those T-shirts just as much as anybody else. Yeah, he still is, only this, only now yeah. he's making money <laughs> off. <laughs> now, as I uh, start to wind it down, I got to know, it's, I mean, some of it is, as we talked about it, obviously creating the NWO, 83 straight weeks dominant. But what would you say is, is your favorite of all, of all the accomplishments you had or the favorite of something you did? I love when you feuded with Flair. I love the easy E character. I love that, you know, that, that cheesy heel smile that you had. What would you say is kind of like your favorite moment or favorite accomplishment as far as WCW? You know, I get that question all the time and you would think after all these years I, I would have spent some time trying to come up with a really good answer but every time somebody asked me that question I literally I, I, my, I search my, my memory and I, I try to pick out one and I think it's probably it's probably like having you know a dozen kids and having somebody come up to you and say you know which one was your favorite you know, what, what was the favorite moment of all the kids you had? 
you know, what was the one moment that, you know, brought you the most joy? And the truth is you can't, you, you can't, it, the, I can't, I can't pick out one moment. I, you know, look, the, the obvious, the obvious answer is, the NWO, the success it created, you know, being on top for, you know, relatively, you know, a cup of coffee, really. But we were still there. The excitement, the adrenaline, the sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, the camaraderie, you know, there were so many good things that were happening when we were on that, you know, upward trajectory and we finally reached that top. Um, that's hard to pinpoint one. I love performing. You know, I love being that character. You know, it was it was a way to get out there and, and accomplish a lot because I was making people hate me. And, you know, all that did was help some babyface along the way down the road, whether it was Roddy Piper or whether, not that Roddy needed my help, by the way, but from a storyline perspective, anytime any one of those babyfaces grabbed me and dropped me on my head or smacked the hell out of me, all that did was help get them over even more. However, however they, how much they were over, it got them over just a little bit more. So, that, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. And for me, you know, who was, you know, I'd always been a performer, I guess, you know, or on camera, I should say. Um, but to be able to go from being a play-by-play -play announcer and the guy doing, you know, the interviews and, and then actually performing as a heel, that was really cool. I'm not lying. That was just amazing. So that was certainly a part of it, but it was really all of it really was it was all of that stuff now i have so many great fond uh, eric bischoff moments especially wcw i mean there's so many i love the zabisco feud anytime you and larry were in there was awesome and the flyer feud i obviously love but i loved that nitro where you kind of get revealed as the heel and you lie to piper and piper calls you a lie that might be one of my favorite uh, easy e eric bischoff moments especially as far as nitro is concerned you know that uh, somebody actually sent me that scene um about six weeks ago, you know, and that's what I love about, you know, Twitter and social media, because people find these clips, and I don't know how they do it, I'm, technically I'm a bit of a high-tech redneck, but somehow <laughs> or another, they, they find all these great clips, right, and they, you know, tweet them to me or email them to me, and I see these things that I'd forgotten about, you know, and, and I know it probably sounds odd to say I've forgotten about them, but, you know, I've produced over 5,000 hours of television. I've done a lot of stuff. And it all kind of, a little bit runs together. And sometimes you don't remember the details until you see it back. And that's one of the clips, you know, every once in a while somebody will send that to me, you know, Roddy Piper fan. And I see that, I go, wow, that was magic. And that was magic because of Roddy. I mean, it was a good story. It was good build up. You know, we had done a good job laying the groundwork. Not, not, you know, denying that we did a good job, but Roddy put it over the top. Roddy made a good job, a great scene. And it was so believable, you know, and, and I wasn't that great of a performer at that point. I was still learning. I was still growing into it. That was all Roddy. And I, I do think that was one of my more fun moments as a character and I also think that that was another one of those moments that contributed greatly, not because of me, but because of Roddy, um, contributed to Nitro's success. There was just a lot of those kinds of moments. 
so great. And if you think about all those moments, it's like impossible to kind of narrow down a few. I mean, Hogan, Sting, Hogan, Goldberg, just Sting, the Crow in general, such a great gimmick to go along with the NW, almost like a Batman Joker kind of thing. But I just was kind of wondering, is there any regrets or a big regret on your part, something that you're like, oh, we could have nailed that and we would have, you know, maybe lasted a little bit longer. If we, we would have did this, we would have, you know, was there any kind of thing that stands out as regret on your part? Yes and no. Um, and this is going to sound like the answer you would expect, but I, there was a point in time, I think it was in July, maybe early August of 1998, when I told my wife I was going to quit. And if you go back and look at ratings and revenue and press and everything else, we were still rocking it. We were still on top. So it wasn't that. It was at that moment or during that period, and it might have started in mid-July, I, I realized I didn't understand it completely. I didn't understand what was happening but I knew something was happening and I could feel the, the ground kind of shifting underneath me as a result of the AOL Time Warner merger. There were changes being shoved down my throat that I knew were wrong. There were decisions being made that I knew were detrimental. There were budgetary issues that made absolutely no sense to me as the guy that was running the company. There were people beginning to tell me how to run my company that didn't even know what night of the week Monday Nitro was on. And at first I thought it was temporary, which is why I didn't quit because I thought it was gonna kind of write itself. And that was my mistake. And in a weird twisted way, it's not even weird and twisted, in my own way for my own reasons, I wish I would have quit when we were on top because my career would have been much different <laughs> had I quit while we were on top and let AOL Time Warner choke themselves out instead of choking me out and then choking out WCW, which is what happened. Uh, I, I wish I regret that. I regret that I didn't go with my instincts because I've always followed my instincts always. And most of the time I'm right. Most, of, not all the time, but if I, if I look at a situation, or especially if I'm immersed in it, if I'm immersed in a situation and my gut tells me something, I 99 times, 90 times out of 100, I go with it. And I'm almost always right. But I, there was one time, one, of, you know, it wasn't the only time, but it was one time when my instinct said, tell them to pound salt, go out on top, you'll be fine. And I talked myself out of it. And I wish I wouldn't have. Um, in terms of there being any one creative thing or any one tactical thing that I could have done, I don't really think about that too much. There were some great opportunities that got blown that were part of, you know, what, what I was feeling and seeing and, and, you know, suffering, I guess, in a way back in 98. You know, one of which was, um, I can't remember exactly what year it was. Why does it, might have been 98, actually. Um, NBC, the head of NBC called me. Uh, there was a basketball strike, whatever year it was. 
and they had all these, you know, NBA games scheduled on NBC on, on, on Monday night uh, or Tuesday night, I think it was. And they called me and said, hey, would you want to do a Nitro special prime time on NBC? And it was on Valentine's Day. I went, well, hell yes, I'll do that. And I was, this was after we had worked with Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman had been married, and I think he was divorcing Carmen Electra. So I talked to Dennis, and uh, I had somebody else talk to Carmen, and we were going to have them get divorced in the ring. Like everybody does, you know, wrestling weddings. <laughs> we were going to do a wrestling divorce <laughs> on Valentine's Day with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra on NBC in prime time. It, was, it would have been so great. And I had people above me who a year before, if this would have happened a year before, I wouldn't have asked anybody any permission. I just would have done it. People would have watched it on TV. But holy crap, I didn't even know that was happening. But because of what was going on inside of Turner and AOL or Time Warner at the time before AOL, I couldn't, I couldn't make those kind of moves the way I used to make the way I used to make them. I had to ask permission. Then 25 people who I didn't even know would you know, get together in a room and I wasn't even invited to, to be in. And they would decide whether or not I, whatever I wanted to do, I could do. I mean, that's the kind of crap that really put WCW under, if the truth be known. Um, it doesn't fit the narrative that's been out there for 20 years, but that's the truth. It was a combination of those things, too. But I think, if you know, that, that, that NBC primetime special, because at the time we were rocking, we were on top. We were still in an ascension kind of a, a position. We are still growing. And then to make a move like that would have just catapulted us even further into the stratosphere. But instead, I got the rug pulled out from underneath me, and I had to call NBC and tell them, sorry, thanks for the offer. I can't do it. They must have thought I was nuts. Hmm. I mean, just listening to myself tell that, retell that story, I feel like I was nuts. and I, It wasn't even my fault. Um, that was one, and there was one other big opportunity that we missed for much the same reasons, really. Is and it was the reason why you know I started working with Kiss and we had all these Kiss type characters coming into the storyline and it's the reason I paid Gene Simmons and Kiss two hundred fifty grand you know play two or three songs you know at a Nitro in Las Vegas because the that was the beginning of a of a storyline and an arc that was going to build towards a New Year's Eve show in nineteen ninety nine and if you remember at the turn of the millennium everybody thought you know planes were going to fall out of the sky. Computers are going to crash, you know, babies would wail, there'd be gnashing and, you know, of teeth, you know, it was all going to, the world was going to come to an end. Prince even wrote a song, you know, everybody thought this something really crazy was going to happen when, you know, the, the clock struck midnight in 1999 and we rolled over to 2000. So my idea was to do a live pay-per-view at the Fiesta Bowl and I'd already worked it out with the, the all the the owners and all the decision makers that were working the Fiesta Bowl, City of Phoenix, everybody, or Tempe, we were going to do on New Year's Eve, we were going to do a show that was going to literally end on, the, on a three count at the stroke of midnight. And we were going to do it in the, uh, in the stadium where they played the, the uh, Fiesta Bowl. And on one half of the stadium, it was going to be a KISS concert. And the other half was going to be a live pay-per-view. <clears throat> so we were going to open up the show with KISS music. And they'd play a set, one or two songs. And then we'd go to our first match. We'd have a match. And we'd go back to the other end and have more music. 
and we'd go back to the other and have another match. <clears throat> we're going to go back and forth like that all night until at the very end of the pay-per-view in the main event, the finish was going to come at the stroke of midnight. That would have been a pretty badass pay-per-view. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. That, I, that didn't happen. You know why that didn't happen? You were gone. See, nobody, nobody talks about this. None that, you know, there's no narrative about this. Nobody, you know, Dave Meltzer never talked about this, right? That didn't happen because a bunch of Turner employees that would have had to work over Christmas and New Year's, <clears throat> they would have been home for Christmas, but they would have had to work over New Year's. They complained to human resources. And the, the corporate side of Time Warner Turner decided that it was unfair of me to ask people to work on a holiday. What a, uh, what a screw job. It's definitely crazy. That would have been uh, pretty cool. Obviously, there is some things about WCW that so many people wish were around today. I mean, there's so many imprints that you left, whether it be, you know, kind of the Vince versus Austin storyline was kind of, in a way, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that came kind of from the NWO. DX was the biggest ripoff of the NWO of all time. I mean, there's so many different <laughs> things. Nowadays, the Bullet Club is a huge ripoff of the NWO. Maybe, maybe it's uh, them kind of paying homage, but do you think that as well? Do you think maybe even the Bullet Club goes as far as being a, a ripoff of the NWL? I don't look at it as a ripoff, honestly. I, I think it has roots in the NWL. There's, I, I don't think that can be denied, um, and I don't think they're trying to deny it. I, I think it is a bit more of an homage. I think it's an extension. I think it's an evolution, um, but certainly there's it, its roots, creatively speaking, are in the NWL, but I, you know, ripoff to me is that, that connotates something negative and disparaging. And I, I, I think the bullet club's cool. I at the bullet club's working by the way, not because they're, they're mimicking, you know, the two sweet sign or the Wolfpack sign or whatever you want to call it, the click sign, you know, but by the way, that's another thing. And you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm right about this. I'm going to ask somebody that's really, really into it. Like Conrad Thompson to, to do the research. And I want to ask wrestling fans, when was the first time you saw that two sweet side on a regular basis? And I know that they probably did it once or twice, kind of code, like sign language to each other back in you know, the click days as they were breaking it up. But that, that sign, you know, throwing that sign, too sweet, all of that stuff was part of the NWL. And it became something that, dx did and now it's become something that the bullet club is doing but again i think i i think the reason the nwo worked and to a degree the reason dx worked uh and the reason the you know the bullet club is working is because of the chemistry of the people in it if you took a bunch of guys that didn't have the right vibe that didn't have that couldn't deliver in the ring that just didn't have that really unique attitude and they were doing the same things that the Bullet Club is now doing, it wouldn't get over. It's got to be, it's, it's like casting a movie. You know, you can give an actor, you know, there's a million actors in Hollywood. You could give them a script. And that actor, he may be a great actor or she, may be a great actress. And then you give that, that same script, the exact same script, to a different actor. And that different actor blows it out of the park and wins an Oscar. And it's just chemistry. And I think that's why the Bullet Club is getting over, not because they're throwing the two sweet sign, not because they're doing anything that's been done before. They're getting over because they're over. 
and because they've got the right chemistry. It's amazing to see what they've done in a short amount of time here in the last couple of years. It's uh, pretty much what the NWO did to our generation, Eric. I see uh, that same style of fan coming out of these Bullet Club fans. But as we get to wrap it up here now, we'll take it back to the event in Richmond on May 19th. TMPT Con 2. We got two huge events. We have a fan convention and signing, as well as the TMPT Con 2 nightcap with the guest today, Eric Bischoff. It's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. We can't wait for it to happen. And also, you got your big show, 83 Weeks, debuting very, very soon. But before we get to the plug for 83 Weeks, before we get to all the uh, the things going on in the world of Eric Bischoff, what would you say the biggest misconception is about you? I mean, there's so much said, and you've, you've addressed it in your book. You've done your podcast in the past. But what would you say the fans or the writers or the people in the business, the, bi- the biggest misconception is about you personally? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that you know, not so much anymore. You know, because so much time has passed. But they, for the most part, generally speaking, people didn't understand that you know the guy they saw in the ring was a character that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company. So they they, they really believed that that guy that they you know loved to hate. Uh, but truly hated in some cases was actually a pretty decent guy. He was at least he was a different guy. Might have been decent in their opinions, but they didn't really understand that you know I wasn't that guy in the ring. That there, there was a different personality. You know, once I got away from you know the arena, um, and I think many people had the perception that I really was that character. And I guess that's a compliment, but it does get awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it means you did your job to uh, to the absolute greatest extent you possibly could. So now, as I said, please share with the listeners of the Two Man Power Trip where they can find everything in the world of Eric Bischoff, as well as the information about the brand new show, Eighty Three Weeks, coming soon to uh, earbuds near you. Yeah, well, we'll start out with Eighty Three Weeks. Obviously, I'm doing that show with Conrad Thompson. I think there's been a pretty good buzz about that. Uh, you know, we've been talking about doing this now for about a year. We were actually talking about doing it back when I was doing uh, the show with Nick Houseman. But, you know, at the time, I didn't want to make a change for a variety of reasons. And I was still kind of understanding the podcast world from the business side of things. And um, back when I decided in October, November to kind of take a hiatus, and all that was really was going into the you know Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays. I knew I was going to be traveling a lot, both for business and for, for the holidays. And I just didn't want to have to worry about producing a podcast every week. So I initially I thought, well, I'm just going to go on hiatus for a little while. And then after a couple of weeks, I thought, you know, I don't really want to come back and do this because I don't feel great about it. And that's when Conrad and I started talking. And look, I'm going to be honest. I'm a little nervous about it. Yeah, nervous isn't the right word. I'm, I can't think of a better word, so I'm going to go with nervous. Uh, Conrad has a style. You know, I liken Conrad to a prosecuting attorney. You know, in, in, a, in, in, a, in a serious trial, um, he digs. And he digs from three or four or five different angles all simultaneously. He's really good at what he does. And what makes him good is not because he's persistent and not because he's, he's not afraid to ask whatever question comes to his mind. He's got no filter when it comes to questions. Um, but he does his research. And, you know, I have issues from time to time with where he gets his research from but he comes prepared to fight 
So it's going to be intense. Um, it's going to be challenging. I'm not used to being challenged too much unless I'm talking to a banker or my wife or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, your, or in business, you know. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to wrestling, you know, I'm not confronted too often. And I expect this to be pretty confrontational. And I think it's going to be entertaining because of that. The show, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a scoop here. I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, there's a good chance. Let's put it this way. Don't be surprised if the first show doesn't drop within a week. But based on some of the calls that I've had today and some of the emails I see flying back and forth as recently as about an hour ago, it looks like we're gearing up to drop a show sometime in the next seven days. You know, if he asked you the hard-hitting questions and the ones that John uh, has kind of dribbled out here tonight, I guess those would be considered the softballs. So I'm sure you're going to be in for one hell of a ride with Conrad because I know he does have a certain style of his own. No, well, you know, I'll say, no, his style, you, know, you guys aren't confrontational, and I appreciate that. <laughs> for that. But no, you guys ask great questions. And, you know, I'm not, by no means am I suggesting that I don't like these types of questions. I do. If you can't tell, I'm pretty excited to talk to you guys. And I love going back and explaining details of how and why and when, you know, that, that falls outside of the typical dirt sheet narrative that most people live and die by. But no, no, it's, I, I, I enjoy doing this. But like I said, Conrad's got his own style. And, you know, if you listen to him and Bruce, um, there are times listening to that show when you swear to God, those two are going to go to blow once the show's over. Yeah, that's a very good point. But, you know, John's also the president of the unofficial Eric Bischoff fan club. So that's the other reason I wanted to. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> <you know. laughs> maybe we maybe we need to make it official. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Eric, it's been so much fun to catch up again tonight. We haven't really had the chance to uh, chat since you gave us a little bit for our 300th episode uh, a couple months back. And we always appreciate everything that you've done for us, especially when we joined the IRW network with Shane Douglas. And we're still doing that show. And we're about 43 weeks in on that side of things. So we owe it a lot to you to help us. You know, we got that together to get it on your network. So we appreciate that from you. And, and to use a line from a great uh, poet laureate here of WCW, Eric Bischoff. If you don't listen to 83 Weeks, if you don't check out the TMPT Con 2 coming to you May 19th, then what the hell were you thinking? So, Eric, we appreciate what? you. <laughs> what the hell were they thinking? All right, guys, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.